our church family to welcome Jeremy and Ann Simpkins from Manchester, England. And Jeremy and Ann have been coming to be with us now for the past six years. And they're based out of there. And they help lead our family of churches, of Christ Central Churches. And so we're thrilled to be able to have them again. And they were in Ontario with uh, some of our churches earlier this week and arrived on Friday. And they're here with us till a week from tomorrow. So welcome, Jeremy and Ann. And Jeremy is going to bring God's word to us this morning. Thanks, Thank Joe. You. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. It's wonderful to celebrate that Jesus is alive yes. and so evidently amongst you, his presence here. So if you've got a Bible, I wonder whether you could turn to Mark's Gospel and chapter 10. We're going to read a portion of God's Word and I want to talk this morning about the whole issue of servanthood and following Jesus' example of being servants. It's interesting in our culture, I don't know what it's like here in Canada, but I guess it's pretty similar to our culture back in the UK, where I guess I, me, am at the centre of just about everything. If you want to sell a product, you put an I in front of it, and it'll sell quicker than most. And I guess selfishness uh, is at the heart of our culture, putting me first, you know, get what you can out of life, look after yourself, uh, what's in it for me. And of course, as Christians... We're exempt from all that, aren't we? I think not. You know, where, where's my ministry? Where do I fit into this church? What did I get out of the meeting? It's a kind of consumerist attitude if we're not careful. And I think Jesus speaks right into the heart of this. The context of this passage we're just about to read is Jesus giving some pretty amazing self-revelation about what his mission is, where he's going. He's on a journey, a literal journey, a physical journey to Jerusalem to give his life and to die for the people. And he's starting to open up his heart, sharing his inner life with his disciples, starting to talk to them and sharing his innermost thoughts and concerns, to be honest. And he's sharing that with them, and you'll see the beautiful response that they give to this amazing act of self-disclosure. So this is Mark chapter 10. We can pick it up from, I guess, somewhere around... Verse 32 is a good place to be. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, because this is not the first time he's done it, again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man, and by the way, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But three days later, he'll rise. He couldn't be clearer, could he? You know, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. It's no mystery. This has been planned from eternity past. And just look now at the beautiful response of the disciples. You imagine Jesus telling you personally that he's going to die and yet rise again. This is their attitude. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> huh? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. 
Jesus said to them, actually, yes, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm to be baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the other ten heard about this, they became indignant. Now, why do you think that was? Do you think they were somehow like so moved with what Jesus had just shared? I think, James and John, please be quiet. Jesus is talking about his, his most personal life here. He's talking about going to the cross and dying. Please be quiet. Please be sensitive. No, I think they just didn't think of it first. <laughs> Tell you how I know that. You flip back to Mark 9, just the chapter before. And on the road to Capernaum, it says this, uh, verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Uh, They kept quiet because on the road, they had argued about who was the greatest. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last. And the servant of all, and he took a child and had the, the child stand amongst them, taking him to his arms. He said, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me, sorry, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome, sorry, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Sorry, I'm just not reading the English very well there. You get the gist. (laughs) Jesus is this amazing self-disclosure, so he goes on. The, The ten became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's what it is in our world. The authorities, the the rulers, they exercise authority over. Jesus said, That's the world. That's the way it is. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. And then Jesus gives this incredible description of his ministry, which we're going to zone in on this morning. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you gave your life as a ransom for many. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We're here, purchased by the blood of Jesus. We're here as those who are secure in Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't come to be served, but you served us. You gave your life as a ransom for many. And Lord Jesus, we worship you. And Lord Jesus, we ask you this morning for revelation. We ask you for truth to come alive. We ask you that your word would be living. Holy Spirit, please, would you now come, open our hearts that we might hear, open our hearts that we might respond to your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting, these two couple of disciples, James and John, usually it's Peter. Peter's the one with the foot-shaped mouth. You know, he's the one who usually puts his foot in it. But here it's James and John, and Jesus has nicknamed them in the past. I wonder what your nickname is. It usually has something to do with your character or personality. But these guys are nicknamed in Mark 3, the Sons of Thunder. I mean, you know, I guess they kind of just thunder out and just got big mouths and just kind of put their foot in it all the time. In Luke chapter 9, it's interesting, it's James and John who, when Jesus is 
not received in a certain village. It's James and John says, shall we nuke them, Lord? Shall we call fire down from heaven? And Jesus says, no, that's not going to be our way. And uh, it's funny, Matthew's account is even funnier. If you look at the parallel versions in the Gospels, I love the fact that we've got different viewpoints in the Gospels, not just one biography of Jesus, but different viewpoints. In Matthew's Gospel, it says, their mother came and asked on his behalf. How embarrassing is that? You send your mum, mum, ask Jesus, when he comes into his glory, can we be at, can we be at his right and can we be at his left? And it's just so funny. It's just so amusing. And I don't know whether they did it in a kind of mafia-suited, like, we'll look, thank you. We'll look after you, Jesus. You know, one at your right, one at your left. Don't you worry when you're coming to your glory. You know, we'll be there. I don't know know what their heart was. I think their heart certainly wasn't servanthood. I think their heart was putting themselves in the picture. And we've got to be so careful, dear friends, that that isn't our attitude. We've got to be so careful that our heart attitude is like Jesus. For he then comes and gives this amazing verse, which some of us know so well, for even the Son of Man. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, which he should have been, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's interesting, we don't really get this in our culture because we're not rooted in first century understanding of uh, the Word of God and of understanding of various types and symbols and various things that they would certainly get just like that. You see, when we refer to the Son of Man... See, when I was in Sunday school, they said, yeah, Jesus is two things. He's the Son of God, and that means he's divine. He's the Son of Man, and that means he's human. That was kind of the way it was described to us, and that's true, by the way. Jesus is both, and he is both divine and human. It's the mystery of the incarnation, the 100% God, 100% man, beautifully entwined together in this wonderful incarnation. But actually, the Son of Man was a particular title that, when used, would have stirred something in their minds because it was from one of their favorite Old Testament passages. And actually, it's nothing to do with humanity. It's actually to do with glory and more to do with divinity, actually, probably than even the phrase, the Son of God. In fact, it's Jesus' favorite phrase for himself. He uses it 84 times, and he's the only one who uses it. Others don't use it of him. He unashamedly uses it of him, and it's a reference back. It reverberates back in their culture to Daniel uh, chapter 7 when we get this amazing insight, and the heavens open, and it says this, And in my vision there was the Son of Man. This is the title that Jesus is claiming for himself. There in my vision, I saw the Son of Man coming with the clouds in heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting kingdom. An everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He says this, even the Son of Man. Even this glorious one that you spoke about in Daniel. Even this one who's going to come in power in the heavenlies. Even this one who's going to have all authority, all power. Give to even the Son of Man. Comes not to be served, but to serve. Wow. They would have gone, oh my word, oh my goodness. As Joe would say, oh my soul. (laughs) You know, this is incredible. 
that even the Son of Man. And then Jesus refers to another Old Testament character. And again, in our context, perhaps we don't get it so easily. But when he's talking about the serving one, the one who serves, to serve and to give his life, again, we kind of miss it. But for them, it would have been a direct reference to another character in the Old Testament, particularly from the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord, the one who's come to serve and to do God's will. And Jesus definitely and deliberately identifies himself with this suffering servant. In fact, Jesus is almost enacting the suffering servant's life. It's the suffering servant who was somehow anointed with the Spirit. There's a suffering servant who was somehow coming. And as Isaiah 53, we get this incredible insight of the suffering servant who somehow, through his shameful death, somehow through his suffering, he would identify with the people of God. And somehow, through his suffering, they didn't understand it. It was a mystery to them. We now perfectly understand it. I don't know about perfectly, but we understand it. Through his mysterious death and through his identification with the people of God, somehow he would overcome authorities and powers. Somehow he would lead them into victory. Somehow, through his shameful death, actually victory would come. And Jesus is deliberately associating himself with that one and saying, it's so different from the way of the world. It's so different from the world that comes to lord it over you. It's so different from the authority structures that we get in our schools or we get in our education systems. We get in our... uh, employment places, we get in politics, there has to be authority, we understand that, we're under those authorities, Jesus is saying, and there's a lording it over sometimes, there's an exercising of authority over, he says, actually the kingdom of God is upside down, to quote Gary earlier, it's come to be radically different, and actually through the subversive power of servanthood and suffering, I've come to turn the whole thing upside down, I've come to overcome by servanthood, I've come to overcome by giving my life. He says it's so different. You see, they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted, the Jews wanted one who would deliver them from Rome because they thought Rome was the, ty- the, tyr- the tyrant, the tyrannical one. And Jesus said, no, it's not about Rome. I've come to deliver you from sin. I've come to deliver you from shame. I've come to deliver you from guilt. And the way I'm going to do that is to give my life. The way I'm going to do that is through the subversive power of servanthood, giving my life as a ransom for many. It's totally different. It's the kingdom of God upside down, totally different from the world's view. Friends, we're totally different from the world. We're not called to be out of the world. We're in the world. But we're told not to be of it. Not to be of its power. Not to be of its authority structure. Not to be of its way of doing things. We are going to win the world by the subversive nature of giving our lives. For the subversive nature of servanthood. Of giving our lives to the world. Just as Jesus gave his life for us. And interestingly enough... Jesus, when he talks about the cross and the events of the cross, he actually highlights some of the suffering servant's promises. So this is one of the suffering servant's promises. This is in Isaiah 52. See my servant, this is the suffering servant, he will act wisely and he'll be raised up. We think worldly raised up. Jesus was thinking, and God was thinking, a very different kind of being raised up. He'll be lifted up. And he'll be highly exalted. 
When we think of that, we think of a king on a throne. Actually, Jesus was thinking of a lamb on a cross. That was when Jesus was highly lifted up. Now, Jesus deliberately in his ministry refers to that. Jesus deliberately understands that the suffering servant has come to give his life, to come to be a ransom for many. For instance, just three from John's Gospel. John 12, verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's he referring to? The cross. John 3, 14 to 15. As Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, and you remember what happened, there was a plague, and they were told to make a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole. In fact, some medical practices still have that symbol of a cross with a serpent on it. Moses was told to do that. It was a symbol of the cross. It was a symbol of uh, humanity being lifted up and raised up, Jesus being lifted up and raised up. And he said, just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a different kind of being lifted up. And whoever believes in me will have eternal life. John 12, verse 32 to 34. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. And then John writes, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, we don't get that. When I'm lifted up, you think that means when I come into my power and authority. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. It's through the cross. It's through what he's going to do on the cross. It's actually Jesus becomes enthroned when he's on the cross. It's actually his hour of enthronement. Actually, they get it right. Pilate, ironically, gets it right when he puts the title over the cross in Mark's Gospel. He says, Jesus, King of the Jews. He gets it right. Jesus is being in thr- It was meant to be mockery, but actually, in irony, he gets it right. Jesus, actually, as he's giving his life, as he's paying the price, he's actually becoming king. As he's, absolv- he's absorbing all the hatred and greed and lust and shame, as he's taking all that to himself and paying for it on the cross, he's actually being exalted. As he's giving his life for us, he's actually, in that act, being the suffering servant, the one who's taking away the sin of the world, the one who's ruling and reigning actually over sin at that point, paying for it, totally triumphing over it. You see, we tend to think of Easter today as being the point of triumph. Actually, the cross is the point of triumph. The cross is the point where he paid for it all. The cross is the point where the suffering servant gives his life as a ransom for many. The suffering servant is when he's paying with his own blood for our shame, our sin, our wrongdoing. It's the mark of victory, it's the vi- which is why the cross, actually not the empty grave, although we'll come on to that later, it's why the cross has become the symbol of Christianity. Because Jesus paid the price. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, interestingly enough, as, was it Kayla? Said this morning, she said, actually, there were two other crosses. We read that in the Gospels very clearly. Two robbers, two thieves, two criminals. One at his right, one at his left. Do you know, there was one at his left and one at his right in glory. And when James and John say, we want to be at your left and at your right in glory, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. There was one. 
And their responses is really interesting. One of them, totally overawed by Jesus, just as the centurion was. Totally gets it. He's not paying for himself. He gets it. The other one, mocking. <laughs> Say you're the son of God. Think you're that glorious one coming in power, do you? Well, get yourself off and us off as well. The other one says, shut up, you don't know. And he says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your glory and your kingdom? Jesus said, yes, right now, today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's wonderful. Which thief are you? Which one are you? See, we're all robbers. We're all thieves. We're all guilty. We're all full of shame. There's not one of us in this room who says, I've lived the perfect life. I don't need to pay for my sins. No, every one of us one day is going to pay for our sins. Every one of us is going to have to be called to account for God, for what we've done in the body, what we've done, what we've said, what we've thought. See, it's not even about saying it, it's about thinking it. Jesus said, even if a man thinks a lustful thought in his mind, he's guilty of committing adultery. Even if a man thinks a hateful thought in his mind, he's almost like guilty of murder. How many murderers and adulterers are here for this morning alone? <laughs> Just from today, we're all guilty. And who's going to pay for your guilt? Is it the thief on the cross that says, if you're so great, save yourself and me? Or are you going to be the one who says, Jesus, would you remember me? Would your sacrifice be for me? Could I have a share in this, Jesus? As Joe said, it's decision time for some of us in this meeting. Who's going to pay for your wrongdoing? Who's going to answer for what you've done and thought and said? The wonderful, wonderful gospel of Jesus is that he's willing <clears throat> to take the blame, to take the shame, to bring it all to himself and to pay the price on the cross. Now we're going to look at how Jesus lived his life of service. And I want to just bring this to us and hopefully <clears throat> apply servanthood to us. And my, my message this morning is that we should be followers of Jesus. We're Christians, little Christ, little followers of him. And actually, we should live our life as he lived his life. And this isn't for us to be those who lord it over others, but this is to be for us to give our lives for others, just like Jesus, not in a substitutionary atonement way, paying for sins. He's done that once and for all. But in a way of following his example, Jesus actually tells us we should take up our cross and follow him. Again, that doesn't mean we, we pay for other people's sins like he does, but it means the way of sacrifice is to follow Jesus. It means the way of victory is by servanthood. It means you are at your most glorious, just as Jesus was at his most glorious, when you're serving God's purposes and when you're serving other people. So let's just look at a few things. Number one, Jesus gave up all his rights and privileges. See, in our culture, we're so keen on our rights, human rights, the Bill of Rights, my rights, what's owed to me. I demand this. I'm owed this. You really want to make sure that you got your rights before God? You really want to ask God to give me what's right? Are you really sure you want to ask him for that? 
Are, really, are you really sure that you want to take into your own authority and stand on your own before God and say, I want my rights? Because naturally, we have the right to punishment. <laughs> naturally, we have the right to his wrath, his anger, even hell. Dear friends, Let's do what Jesus did, not insist on our rights. Now, he had rights. He could have said, he could have demanded honor. He could have demanded glory. It says of this, of Jesus, at, when he took the towel and washed their feet, this is what it says of him, John 13, 3-4, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was to return to God. That's pretty clear in his identity. He wasn't like, you know, if ever you've seen the film that I grew up with, Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, you know, he's, I've got to know who I am and all that, he says. It's all very great rock opera, but it's just rubbish in terms of its theology. He does know who he is. He's not worried about who he is. He's not concerned about who he is. He knows that all authority, all power is his. He knows he's come from the Father and he will return to the Father, which is the whole great loop of salvation. He knows the cross isn't the end. He knows that he'll be resurrected in power and authority and return to the Father in glory and sit at the Father's right hand forever to reign. Knowing that, what does he do? He says, guys, why don't you start now and worship me? Guys, just to let you know, this is who I am. Bow down, fall down. He doesn't. He says this. Knowing that the Father has put all things under his power, he come from God and was to return to God, he got up, wrapped a towel around his waist, and started to wash their feet. Listen, this isn't about crushing your identity. This isn't about servitude. This isn't saying, oh, I'm just a nothing, I'm just low. Knowing who we are in Christ, knowing that, we're come, that, our, that our destiny, we've been predestined from the Father, knowing that we're saved in Christ and are going to the Father, knowing that we are called to rule and reign with Christ, knowing who we are in Him, what do we do? We take the towel and we serve. Because we're clear, we're secure in our identity, just like Jesus. Our attitude should be the same. Secondly, Jesus saw his first call was to serve God. It's interesting, we must understand this, that the first call of a servant is to his master. And actually, our first call is to serve God. Not to run around fulfilling others' needs first, not to be giving out first, but to first know that as a servant, I'm his. That he saved me and bought me with his blood. And I am his now, owned by him. He's the master, he's the Lord, and I'm to live for him. He comes first, he dictates. It is Christ central. He is Lord over my life. I'm not dictated to by the needs of others. I'm dictated to by the love of Christ, and the love of Christ compels me and convicts me and moves me forward. Jesus was so clear about that. So was Paul. I love this verse. I read this this week, actually, just put it in my notes. I hadn't seen it before. Galatians 1 verse 10 says this. Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings? Wow. <laughs> they, they write great thick counselling books on that, don't I? Am I trying to win the approval of human beings? Actually, many of us are. Many of us are trying to impress. Many of us are trying to do that, to win approval of human beings or of God. Or am I trying to please people? 
If I were still trying to please people, Paul says, I would not be a servant of Christ. How many of us are man-pleasers? How many of us try just to please other people all the time? Now, Paul says, actually, if we're going to be true followers of Christ, our aim is to please him first. Our aim is to honor him first. Our aim is to see our first call is to serve him. That's what motivated Jesus. What, if you ask what motivated Jesus was this, John 6, 38. I have come not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 4, verse 34. My food, that which energizes me, that which gives me passion, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth. Your will be done, not mine. It's not me first or others first. It's Jesus first. It's Christ central. So important, dear friends. We understand that. I came across this parable uh, a year or two ago. It's from a book called uh, Improve Your Serve by a guy from the States. Some good things can come from the States. It's okay. Um, His name is... (laughs) Charles Swindle, which is a great name for a Christian pastor, isn't it? Swindle. <laughs> um, he, he's, a, he's, actually a, he's actually a great, great uh, biblical teacher. And it's a modern take on the pearl of great price. Do you remember the, the man in the Bible who's looking for the pearl of great price and comes across one that he's willing to give, willing to give everything for? It's a kind of modern take on that. It's a conversation between the guy who's looking for the pearl, who he thinks he's just found it, and the pearl seller. I want this pearl. How much is it? Well, says the seller, it's very expensive. Yeah, but how much? Well, a very large amount. Yeah, but do you think I could buy it? Oh, of course, everyone can buy it. But didn't you say it was very expensive? Yes, I did. Well, how much is it? Everything you have, says the seller. Well, We make up our minds. All right, I'll buy it. Well, what do you have, he wants to know. Let's write it down. Well, I have, (laughs) wait for it, $10,000 in the bank. See, he must be from the States. (laughs) Good, $10,000. What else? What do you mean, what else? That's all I have. That's my life savings. Well, I have a few dollars here in my pocket. How much? Well, we start digging. Let's see, 30, 40, 60, 80, 100, $120. See, I told you he's American. $120, that's fine. What else do you have? Well, well, nothing, that's all. Where do you live? Well, in my house. Yes, I have a house. Ah, the house too becomes mine. What do you mean I've got to live in my camper? You have a camper. (laughs) The camper too, what else? Well, then I'll have to sleep in my car. You have a car. Yes, two of them. Cars, too, become mine. Well, you already have my house, my money, my camper, my cars. What more do you want? Are you alone in this world? Well, no, I have a wife and two children. Oh, yes. Your wife and your children, too. What else? Well, I have nothing left now. I'm all alone. Then suddenly the seller exclaims, Oh, I almost forgot. You yourself, too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, you too. And then he goes on. Now listen, I'll allow you to use all these things for the time being, but don't forget that they're mine, just as you are mine. And whenever I have need of any of them, you must give them up, because I am now the owner. See, Jesus is Lord. We don't just tack Jesus onto our lives as an insurance policy for eternity. 
as Christians, we have surrendered our lives to Jesus. And we're saying, Jesus, you're central, you're Lord, you're King. And actually, he bought us with a price. He bought us with his blood. When he shed his blood on the cross, that was the price that was on our heads. In fact, biblically, it's called a ransom price. It was the price to redeem us back. In the slave market, every slave had a price on their head, a ransom price to redeem the slave, to set the slave free. And there was a price on our heads, and it was death. And on the cross, Jesus paid the ransom price for us. And we don't just say, I think I'll go to church and have a little bit of religion. If we're coming to Jesus, we surrender to him. He's Lord. If we're going to allow him to save us and to pay the ransom price, then actually he becomes the owner. He becomes the master. He becomes the Lord. We're not our own anymore. We're his. We're bought with an incredible price. Dear friends, it's so important in our society where we put I first to put Jesus first, to make sure that Christ really is central to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a lot of talk in our society, I don't know about in yours, about freedom and liberties. Civil liberties, courts of rights, making sure you're free to make, I'm free to express my sexuality this way, I'm free to express my lifestyle this way, I'm free to be myself this way. And, you know, I applaud that, I understand freedom. But actually, the Bible says we are never totally free. It says we used to be enslaved to sin, and there was a price on our heads. Sin used to rule us, used to dominate us, used to be our Lord and Master. But it says God has come along and he's redeemed us. He saved us from that, that we might be free. Well, yes, but actually it says in Romans, this, it's incredible. It says that we were once enslaved to sin. You've been free from sin, Romans 6. And have now become slaves to God. So important we understand that. So important we understand that we now have become His. That we're owned by Him. If you don't believe that, you look at what happens next time you sin as a Christian. See, I used to better sin really easily. Enjoy it and get away with it. (laughs) As a Christian, when I sin, I suddenly find this tug inside, which is the Holy Spirit asking me to repent and to convict me and to put me right. It's the tug of holiness. It's the tug of being born again. It's the tug now of being a slave to righteousness. Not in some heavy chain like it was before, but actually chains of love that ensnare me and pull me on. And I find that actually I don't want to do that anymore. That doesn't give me pleasure anymore. But actually this now gives me pleasure serving him. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ enslaves us. The love of Christ owns us and pulls us forward. It's what Isaac Watts wrote about in his most amazing hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Now let's come and bring this into a landing. We've talked that Jesus gave up all his rights and privileges. We've talked that Jesus saw that his first call was to serve God. Lastly, Jesus did serve those around him. And we must be careful that we're not so heavenly minded that we're not any earthly good, that we just say, I serve the Lord, the Lord's my master. Well, actually, if we're truly serving the Lord, if we really love the head of the church, 
We'll love the body of the church and we'll love the work that the church does out in the community, the hands and feet expressed out in life. And if we're really, truly those who are servants of him, we'll do what he does. Jesus went about healing, setting people free, compassion, prayer, forgiveness, love, care, especially towards the marginalized. It's almost like Jesus had this poor meter, this marginalization thing inside him, which almost always drew him to those who were downtrodden, those who were depressed, those who were oppressed, those who wouldn't naturally find their way through society, for lepers and for the lame and for the blind his setting actually for the women as well because they were oppressed and marginalized and he almost always seems to be setting people free and liberating them and serving them and giving his love to them dear friends that's what we're called to do we're called to be servants we're called to give our lives to spend our lives in his service by serving others by serving the world around us god has put you in very significant positions here in this church whether it's in government whether it's in schools whether it's serving on the streets with the sandwich runs whether it's whatever you are doing god has put you in positions not that you'd lord it over people like the gentiles but that you would demonstrate a model jesus's servanthood to be a servant to be giving your life for others and somehow modeling that people are never going to see Jesus apart from seeing him in you see that's the whole purpose of Jesus coming God was somehow in the heavens and they never saw him God became incarnate in the flesh so that they could see him handling him and touch him now in Christ we are almost like God in the flesh you think that's arrogant isn't it that's like no jesus told his disciples i am the light of the world you go wow jesus we bow down and worship you then he said to the disciples you are the light of the world because i'm in you now and actually i'm incarnating love see it's no good telling people about love without showing them it it's no good telling them words without having a heart attitude it's no good just having that without demonstrating it and doing it we're called to be those who demonstrate the love of god and serving it's not something that you just go through when you, you might be in a disciple class, discipleship class, and they say, well, we're just going to train you a bit. Would you put out a few chairs on a Sunday, but we're going to teach you to serve. And it's like, when you've done that, don't worry. After a bit, we'll, you can give up that serving, and you can then be served, or you can then, you, you've, come, you've matured now. You've, you've been well discipled. You don't need to serve anymore. Listen, serving is not a stepping stone to greatness. It's not something to get somewhere. Serving is greatness. It actually is. It was when Jesus was giving his life. That was at his most point of glory. It was at his most point of servitude when he gave his life. When we're serving others, when we're giving our life, when we have that kind word to someone, when we're helping someone on the street, when we're being good to somebody, when we're demonstrating love and mercy and compassion, actually, we're at our most glorious. Jesus is most glorious because we're actually serving in his spirit. We're giving our lives. It's most when we are most, we are at our most glorious when we are acting like Jesus, serving and laying our lives down. Now, you might think this is heavy. I don't think it's heavy at all. I think it's a life of joy. Jesus didn't seem to be burdened down in his life. He seemed to be full of joy, a man anointed with joy more than his fellows, it said. This is a joyful service of God. A happy, fulfilled life. When I am at the centre of my life, I'm never fulfilled. Because there's never enough for me. 
But when I put others, when I put Jesus first, when I'm serving others, actually, I get tremendous joy. I get tremendous fulfillment. Jesus even went to the cross, it said, for the joy set before him. He even gave his life. And this is what it says in John 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces seeds. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be. For my father will honour the one who serves me. Because when you serve, it's like a tiny bit of death. And you know what always follows death? Resurrection. When you serve, when you give your life, when you, it, it's costly to you, it's difficult to you. When you do that, when you serve, it's like you're sowing a seed that's actually going to produce resurrection life, that's actually going to produce something in someone else. Just like Jesus, it wasn't a waste of it. What a waste of his life. You know, 33 years old, what, how much more could he have achieved? No, as he gave and paid, actually that seed fell into the ground. Resurrection life came on Easter Day. When you serve, when you give your life to others, when the kingdom of God flows out from you to other people, actually there's going to be resurrection life associated with that and flowing from that. I read this quote just this morning from a friend of mine. Well, the author isn't a friend of mine, but the guy who put it on the... Twitter account, Dave Stroud's a very good friend of mine. This is from Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, lately now uh, up in St. Andrews in Scotland, uh, also known as N.T. Wright. They're not two evil twins, they're the same person. He wrote this in his great book, Surprised by Hope. It's so important. Let me make a comment on this. I think we've made some mistakes in church life, and we've made a big hop between building the church and going to the nations. And the nations could be Charlottetown, or it could be China. It's, it's anywhere that's not here. <laughs> and we kind of think that like, we're either building the church here, or really the exciting thing to do is to go out there and plant churches, go out there and do the, the, the mission stuff. Well, actually, we've missed out a word. In, in New Frontiers, we tend to use three words, church, kingdom, nations. Now, church is really important. Jesus gave his life for the church, for us, to bring us through. We're his bride. He loves us. It's a really important. Jesus gathered that bride and said, I want to go. You, you must go to the nations, every tribe, every tongue, every language. You must go. Jesus didn't say come. He said go. He gathered his disciples, authority, power, go to the nations. Go to Charlottetown. Go to Halifax. Go to the Maritimes. Go down into the States. Go up into Alaska, if you like. <laughs> go, go. It feels like that this morning. Go, you know, go, 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 go. But actually, Jesus, when he was alive in the flesh on planet Earth in a body, not a resurrected body, he spoke more about the kingdom of God than he did about the church. He spoke twice about the church, really importantly. But he spoke 82 times. <laughs> about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is simply the church living itself out in the community, in life, where you work. This is church today, but what's the church tomorrow on Tuesday? It's where you live, it's where you work, it's where you work itself out. And actually, that's where we're going to see resurrection life. That's where we're going to see fruit. That's where we're going to see impact in our communities. And I believe it's wonderful what God's doing here in Fredericton, bringing a strong local church and going to the nations. But let's not forget, 
impact in Fredericton. Let's not forget the work that God's called us to do to serve those around us every day of the week. And this is what Tom Wright wrote. He said, he's talking about every little act and every little action not being wasted. It's the same thing as what I'm saying this morning. God's recreation of his wonderful world has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and continues as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of the Spirit. So resurrection, he's saying, isn't a once and for all event that happened in Jesus. Of course it did. But he says, now, as the in Christ resurrected people, empowered by the Spirit, we're living out resurrection life. This means that what we do in Christ, in other words, under his lordship, under his inspiration as servants of Christ, and by the power of his Spirit, not in our own flesh, but empowered by him, in the present is not wasted. That kind word, that, that giving of a sandwich, that honouring your expense account, that offer of prayer. He goes on, he says different things. He says, that painting, <laughs> that preaching, that singing, that sewing, that praying, that teaching, that building a hospital, that digging a well, that compassion for justice, that writing a poem, that caring for the needy, that loving your neighbour as yourself, all these things will last into God's future. They are not just part of making this life more bearable, they will have resurrection power in the future. As we act like Jesus, as we give our lives to others, the miracle of Easter happens all over again. These seeds die our actions can be hard work, can be painful, can be costly, can be embarrassing, can be difficult, can cut against the grain of self-centeredness. But as they die, they bring resurrection life in other people. Now, often people say this, Jeremy, I'm too busy to do this. You know, I'm so busy. I've got a family. I've got a job. I've got work to do in the church. I'm too busy to do works of the kingdom in life. I'm too busy to notice that person. I'm too busy to do that. Let me say, I don't think busy is a very helpful word. In fact, I don't think busy is a good word at all. I don't think we should be busy as Christians. Because busy implies somebody else is setting the agenda for our lives. It implies our lives are slightly crazy out of control. It implies actually we're not doing the things that we should be doing. We're doing the things that we're driven to be doing. And actually I believe God wants to reprioritize our lives here today. And he's saying, are you doing the things that you should be doing? Sometimes we have to stop some other things and do the things that are really important. Mary and Martha, yeah? Mary in the kitchen doing all the, Martha in the kitchen doing all the stuff. Jesus says, actually, Mary's chosen the right path. Ma Martha says, I'm too busy to do that. Are you too busy to follow Jesus? Are you too busy to obey him? Are you too busy to do that? Let me end with a quote by Eugene Peterson. This quote has just stunned me this year. It's left-sided, right hook, whatever it is, knocked me over, uh, totally floored me. Eugene Peterson was the guy behind the, the writing of the message interpretation of the Bible. Most of us have enjoyed that over the years. He's a great pastor and author. He used to work actually out of Canada in Vancouver. And this is what he wrote about busyness. 
It's, it's shocking. The word busy is the symptom not of content, sorry, not of commitment, but of betrayal. Not of devotion, but of defection. The adjective busy set towards Christian, in other words, the busy Christian, or actually he wrote about the busy pastor, but it's the same thing, the busy Christian, should sound to our ears like adulterous to characterize a wife. It's not good. Or embezzler to describe a banker. Not good. It's an outrageous scandal, a blasphemous affront. Dear friends, we're not to be busy, driven with others' agendas. The call this morning is to servanthood, to know that he's Lord, he's purchased me with a price, that I'm his now, that there are enough hours in the day to obey my heavenly master, who doesn't want to wear me out, who wants me to act with joy and rest. Jesus says, come to me, you'll have rest. My yoke is easy and light. See, people come to me and say, Jeremy, your lifestyle is very busy, isn't it? You see me on Twitter. And I should really say, actually, it's easy and light. Following Jesus is easy and light. Now, it's hard work, but actually, it's easy and light. Why? Because he empowers me to do it, and he says, do this, and I tend to do a lot of other things as well. We need to take an inventory of our lifestyle and say, are we really serving in the places we should be serving? Are we really fulfilling what God has called us to here in Fredericton? What is it that God's called you to do tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, through the week? What is the thing that he's called you to do? Do it with all your heart. Do it with faith. Even if sometimes it feels like death, God's promising you resurrection power to associate that. Now, we could, and we haven't got time, we could apply it to money as well. I haven't got enough resources. No, we never have enough resources. But actually, as we give, as it's painful sometimes to give, as sometimes we think, oh my goodness, another gift day? Didn't we just have one? And we're having it over two weeks, in case anyone misses it. (laughs) Can't get away. (laughs) No, actually, it's all his. It's not how much should I give. It's, Lord, how much do you want me to keep this week? (laughs) How much, how, much should, how much should I give? Why don't you just ask him? He's a faithful father. He's not going to let you go without. And actually, there's something about sowing and reaping in giving, which is actually about death and resurrection as well. It's actually as we give in faith and sow in faith, this whole chapter in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 written about this, as we give in faith, as we sow in faith into God's work, and, and not just this is not just about being generous in the church, it's about being generous in life, actually. As we do that, what happens? Resurrection life comes. And now this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not give to get. This is giving out of a generous nature in the same way that God loved the world and gave his son. But part of his giving of his son was death and then glorious resurrection. Take an inventory of your finances. Look, say, am am I, am I, is Jesus Lord of my finances? Am I... Is he my master in finances, or is it mine? You can't touch that. I'll, I'll give you a little bit. I'll tip you like I tip the waitress. But I, I don't just say to the waitress, here's my wallet, take, take what you like. 
I'd just tip a little bit. Is that our attitude? Or do we say, no, Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. I'm yours. You're the owner now. You're the boss now. I've been ransomed. I've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord Jesus, we're believing you today that the blood of Jesus is as effective as it was 2,000 years ago. And Lord, I want to pray right now. If there's any man, woman, young person here who hasn't yet made a decision, who hasn't yet said, I'm the thief on the cross who says, would you remember me, Jesus, when you come into your glory? Jesus says, yes, today I'll save you. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Or are you just moaning at God? (laughs) If you're God, why don't you do something about this? Jesus is speaking to you right now. He's willing to buy your life. (laughs) He's willing that you don't pay for your sin anymore. That Jesus paid for it on the cross. But this is not an easy gospel. This is not some greasy grace where we just come in and we carry on our own lifestyle. If we come in to Christ, he's the Lord. He's Messiah and King. He's Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns. And he's demonstrated his reign on the cross when he crushed sin and death. And that was vindicated three days later when he rose in glory and power and authority. And today reigns. And Lord Jesus, we say today, we submit our lives to you. We give our lives afresh. We say, you're the owner, Lord. You're the boss. You're the king. We declare, Lord, you're Lord of our time. If we're too busy, Lord, then we're not living under your lordship. Lord, order our days. Thank you that David said every day is written in your book. Let me live your days, your ways. We give our finances to you, Lord. I haven't got enough. Well, we've always got enough to do what you're asking us to do. And Lord, I want to ask you for this gift day next week. I want to ask you for tens of tens of tens of thousands to be gathered. I want to ask you that we'd obey you. Look at our wallets, Lord. What, what do you want, Lord? What, what, what would serve your kingdom purposes the most? We want to give our lives. And Lord, I pray most of all for this church. As we go to the nations, yes. As we build strong here, yes. I want to ask you that we don't neglect the kingdom of God in life. That we're obedient to you. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the acts of kindness and love and mercy, a sandwich on a street, a a smile in a queue in a supermarket, an act of love and kindness, a a, a word at the drinks cooler where we pray for someone or ask how somebody is. I ask you, Lord, that we would not be too busy to listen to the Spirit and hear you speak and empower us to live for you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.